Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine Radio Show, the show where it's perfectly fine to sit down, relax, and pull out your big 10-inch church warden. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine, uh, coming to you uh, very far pre-recorded on a, uh, well, it's, (laughs) I'm recording for the first time ever, I think, on a February 29th. Yeah, it's leap year. Happy leap year, everybody. I hope you had a good leap day. Okay. Uh, on tonight's show in uh, Pipe Parts, it's the story of the Black Patch Tobacco Wars. So I'm going to read an article that's uh, it, it's, it's enlightening and it's tobacco related. Uh, and then my guest tonight is Chris Feltz. Chris is with Augusta USA and uh, Chris is kind of the done, he, he's the white spot pipe guy in the United States so we get to meet Chris talk to him hang out with him and you'll learn a little bit about uh, Alfred Dunhill's pipes and then we'll have uh, music mailbag in rant all that coming up on this uh, very far pre-recorded episode of the pipes magazine radio show because well I have uh, at this point I should be on uh, day two of my cruise down to the very far southern Caribbean, including parts of, uh, including a stop in the country of Colombia and a partial transit of the Panama Canal. So, more on the cruise when I get back, I promise. I do want to uh, point out now that we are into the month of March, the JDRF fundraisers are going to start up again. And if you have something that you would like to donate, you can email me, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at pipesmagazine.com. Anything pipe, tobacco-related, whatever it is, we'll uh, surely appreciate it, and we'll uh, get it out there and put it to good use. Uh, lots of money that we've raised over the years, and I really appreciate it. Let's see if we can do it again this year. All right, let's get the show rolling so everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. are back and this was uh, sent in to me by uh, listener Jim and it's the remarkable story of the Black Patch Tobacco Wars uh, can, uh, and it says here from 1904 to 1909 a period of great violence broke out in the dark tobacco region of Kentucky and Tennessee these later became known as the Black Tobacco Patch Wars uh, a small group of farmers uh 
It starts off in southwest and northwestern Tennessee. There are around 30 counties that comprised what was called the Black Patch because they specialized in making dark-fired tobacco, which was cured by wood smoke and namely used in chewing and pipe tobacco. At the start of the 1900s, the area was the main worldwide supplier for this type of tobacco, which made it extremely valuable. Problems began to arise when the primary buyer, American Tobacco Company, capped prices and put the local farmers to the edge of poverty. Given that most of the farmers controlled small patches, they had little leverage. On September 24, 1904, the farmers decided to organize. 5,000 locals joined a meeting in Guthrie, Kentucky, and they formed the Dark Tobacco District Planters Protective Association of Kentucky and Tennessee. The initial plan was to stockpile and withhold their product collectively until American Tobacco agreed to pay higher prices. Sadly, this didn't work, namely due to one provision in the PPA charter that encouraged members to use influence and strong endeavor to persuade non-members to join the cause. The buyer groups fought back by offering hugely elevated prices for the tobacco sold by non-members. This created intense tension as members faced even worse financial hardship while their holdout neighbors began reaping huge profits. PPA members had expected this boycott to result in swift action, and by mid-1905, tensions were on the rise and about to blow. In October 1905, 32 members of the Robertson County branch of the PPA got together and formed a committee to visit non-members, whom they termed hillbillies, to apply some light pressure. They called themselves the Possum Hunters, and while most of these visits remained peaceful, some incited fighting, and this would be the official start of the Black Patch Wars. At this time, Dr. David Amos, a farmer and former drill master from Cobb, Kentucky, began to organize members of the PPA following the military training he had received in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. The newly trained men then conducted nighttime raids where they would destroy the barns, tobacco fields, and equipments of the holdouts. These campaigns were initially successful, and by mid-1906, these raiders, who called themselves the Silent Brigade, numbered nearly 10,000. These men became, became known in the press as the Night Raiders, and their campaigns grew in scale towards the end of 1906 as they destroyed entire tobacco houses uh, and destroyed entire tobacco warehouses. Among some of their more famous raids, uh, the raid on Princeton, Kentucky of, on December 1st, 1906, small groups of men rode into town and instructed all townspeople to stay indoors. The raiders moved on to two of the largest tobacco warehouses in the south and lined them with dynamite and kerosene. By early morning, 75 tons of non-PPA tobacco had been destroyed. Another raid in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. On January 4th, the mayor of nearby Hopkinsville received a call that the raiders were coming. They had been expecting this, however, and had no plan in place. Though the raiders were prepared, they held off on aggressions for nearly an entire year. 
On December 7th, 1907, nearly 500 men made their approach and within minutes had seized control of the city. They destroyed all the warehouses, some of the rail depot, and sadly, one of the locals. As a result, the government deployed the Kentucky militia to intervene, and from that moment, no further raids were, would occur where troops were stationed. Uh, another raid in Crittenden County, Kentucky, while the PPA worked in smaller groups to continue to try to persuade non-members, the night raiders resumed their activities in Russellville and Crittenden County. On February 4, 1908, they raided two small towns in Crittenden County and burned all tobacco barns and warehouses. Uh, the war comes to an end and the ATC and, and the American tobacco gets dismantled. In April 1908, almost two years after their first raid, the Night Raiders got a taste of their own medicine as the Kentucky National Guard raided and arrested most of the leaders of the rogue group. This destroyed all organization, lines of communication, and leadership for the group, but all of their work had not been for naught. The U.S. Supreme Court in 1910 ruled that the American Tobacco Company was indeed a monopoly and must be dismantled. As a result, new entrants came in and farmers once again received much higher competitive prices. Over the years, many of the damaged relationships among neighbors were repaired as prosperity became more equalized across the region. It was a dark time for that area of the South, but ultimately served to set the foundation for an industry that would thrive and support thousands of families in Kentucky and Tennessee for the next 100 years. Uh, so just a fun little story. Well, not a fun little story, but an interesting little story about... Uh, the value of tobacco and the value of tobacco in to the southeast United States. And if you remember the American Tobacco Company, that was the Duke family that owned it. And when they split up, it split up into uh, uh, the American Tobacco Company, Lorillard, Liggett and Meyer, R.J. Reynolds, and, uh, and a few others. So it was a nice little tiny company that went on to take over the world. Um, anyway, hope you enjoy that. Again, it's uh, yeah, the, uh, the remarkable story of the Black Patch Tobacco Wars. And in just a moment, Chris Feltz. This is Internet Radio. A Savinelli pipe is a testament to a long legacy, fortified by well-worn hands and destined to be enjoyed for generations. For over 150 years, Savinelli has been dedicated to sourcing the world's finest briar, committed to pushing the boundaries of pipe design, and devoted to the tradition of Italian pipe making. Savinelli is more than a mark. They're a way to help you make your mark. And like you, there can only be one Savinelli. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and joining us is a name that you may not know, but... If you've bought a Dunhill pipe probably in the last uh, 10, 15 years here in the U.S., um, Chris, you might have touched that pipe, haven't you? I guarantee I have. Uh, since 2000, early 2003, um, I guarantee I've touched that pipe. So with that said, let's welcome Chris Feltz to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. All right, so uh, what 
what exactly is your uh, what exactly is your current job title and who do you work for and uh, how can I get a deal on a white spot pipe? Now, forget the last part, but go ahead. Well, I'm currently a sales agent for Augusta USA, which is the white spot U.S. distributor, the exclusive U.S. distributor. And the company is owned by Marco and Sabrina Parashenzo from Rome, Italy. Who we've had on the show before, but that was back with the uh, when we were talking about Costello. So Marco's kind of the... Uh, you don't handle Costello there, but he's turned into the Costello and Dunhill guy. That's correct. Right. He handles all Costello uh, pipes uh, from Rome. He's also the Dunhill distributor for uh, a few countries in, in Europe, Ireland, Switzerland, and Italy. Um, <laughs> so he handles all that over there separate. I handle everything in the United States. All right. Now let, let's go back and get your uh, superhero origin story. Um, obviously, you uh, grew up in the in the southern United States, right? That's correct. Here in Franklin, Tennessee is where I grew up, and that's where our office is, and that's where I still live today. And, and then you... Um, you kind of uh, spent some time off with a very uh, close-cut haircut that might have got some people calling you uh, fuzzy? Well, actually, that is my nickname, but that didn't start in the Marines. That started when I was real little from my mother called me that <laughs> because of my hair grew kind of long back then, and that would have been in the 70s, so that's the nickname that she gave me. And that kind of stuck. And then, uh, so right out of high school, did you go directly into the Marine Corps? I didn't. I was 23 when I left to go to the Marine Corps. Um, I worked on a farm here in town, had our own farm, and then worked on some other farms, did various things. Then finally decided that after high school, that after high school, that that just wasn't enough. So I left and went to the Marines at the age of 23. And how long were you in the Marines, and did you go anywhere fun? I did, yeah. I was in the, I was in the Marines. For, I enlisted for four years. I was selected to join the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit. And what we did was we spent six months at a time uh, out in various seas across the world, um, kind of as a first reaction uh, first response force for anything that would have, would go on. We would be the initial ones that would go into various regions for whatever was going on. So uh, did that for my entire time and uh, made me decide that I needed to go to college. So I left and when I got out of there and went to college. And that would have been right about when, when I met you. That's correct, because I was working at Uptown Smoke Shop while I was in college part-time, and that's when I first met you, correct? And you stayed in the industry after meeting me. You're you're kind of slower or something. Uh, well, that, that could be correct. I, I might be a little bit slow, and I probably learned it from you, so um, everything's turned <laughs> out good for both of us. Yeah. So when did you start smoking, and was it a pipe or a cigar that you started with first? 
cigars. I actually started in the Marines. There were quite a few of us that were together that uh, would meet up certain times of the week, every week, and we'd all have different cigars. And uh, when I'd come back home, I'd go to Uptowns, restock the old humidor, go back to uh, wherever I was. And then while we were overseas, we had our choice of many Cuban cigars from all the regions overseas we visited. So we had plenty. Now, were you, when you were out on the ship, were you allowed to, you know, to sit out on the fantail and smoke a cigar? Yes, you could. There were, there was one authorized smoking deck where you could go out and smoke and any time, day or night, uh, just about any time, day or night, depending on what was going on. And you sure could. And now, are you allowed to still? Yes, they still they still do have uh, smoking decks on ship. Um, they've restricted them a little bit more, but they still allow it. Okay, good. So our so our men and women protecting us out there can still sit back with a pipe or a cigar and watch the water go by a little bit. Oh, exactly, exactly. It makes the time go by because it gets very boring out there when nothing's going on. <laughs> All right. So when you were at Uptowns, was that when you when you were working there part time? Was that when you first tried to smoke a pipe? I did. It was probably a little while after uh, learning uh, of working there before I started smoking a pipe. They pipes always at that time. Um, I didn't know anything about them. Didn't know one thing and then just learning from uh people and everything and uh that's where i first tried my first pipe and and it i'm assuming you had some help and some guidance and advice on how to smoke a pipe so you didn't start off just you know cramming and jamming and going no as a matter of fact it was george brissy that taught me the most about how to smoke a pipe and he's the one that taught me how to uh, how to uh, recognize and 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 all the different shapes, what they were called, and that was on Dunhill pipes back then. And I don't think George's name has come up on this show before, but he was kind of you know he was he was kind of the guy there at Uptown's the the pipe guy that you know was really patient and would take people through the move, you know, through the motions and really got a lot of people smoking a pipe. Oh, exactly. I mean, he was a genius. I mean, he knew there wasn't anything he didn't know about just about every brand of pipe shapes, you name it. So, um, he's the one that really taught me about pipes back then. All right. So how do you, so you go from uh, working part-time at, at Uptowns to working full-time for Music City, right? That's correct. Um, I made a mistake early when I said early 2003, it wasn't. I started working at Uptowns in November. No, I'm sorry. Started working at Music City in November of 2003. Um, I was actually going to go work for the uh, U- U.S. Department of Agriculture. Oh. I graduated college in May of '03, stayed at Uptowns, and in November of 2003, they had just became the distributor for Dunhill, 
and they were looking for someone to manage that brand. And so I went over there to do that with the understanding that as soon as the U.S. Department of Agriculture calls from my application that had been submitted, that's where I was going, and that was okay. Well, years about a year later, that call came, and <laughs> I was enjoying it too much, and I turned them down and stayed there with Dunhill. So, so instead of dealing with trees and uh, and plants and stuff, you wanted to deal with briar. Correct. That That's makes right. sense. It was it was just uh, just fascinating to me, and I loved the the brand. Even though the Music City had many other brands, this was really my concentration, and um, I enjoyed traveling. And so I just that was it. Yeah, so you were you were you became the Dunhill or now White Spot guy, uh, pretty much right off. I mean, you were the ones going at you were the one going out doing the trunk shows and doing the trade shows, right? That's correct. Yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, I was the one that was flying to London and picking all the pipes out and direct com- communication with the factory on new products that were coming out and. Uh, importing everything and that was that was that was the person doing that all right we're going to take a break right here when we come back i'm going to ask chris about what it's like flying to london and picking out pipes because that that's nothing i've ever done and boy that sounds like fun to me so stay with us we'll be back in just a minute Have a look in your tobacco cellar. What do you see? Think of what you smoke, what you age, what you're drawn to in a blend that keeps you wanting more. That's your taste. And whether you know it or not, you've been leading that expedition since you first picked up a pipe, just by smoking what you like and liking what you smoke. But the funny thing about taste, it changes, and you need a wide selection to accommodate it. We at Smoking Pipes know this, and you know it too. So whether you're searching for a tried and true favorite or a singular boutique mixture, we're here to help you navigate the voyage of your evolving tastes. But you're still at the helm. Smoking Pipes, in faithful service of the hobby. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show visiting with uh, Chris Feltz, who, I, you know, it took me probably, I don't know, I, about five, six years to know that your real name was Chris. I thought you were just fuzzy. Um, but then I finally got it. So, I, so I'm good now. Uh, but Chris, talk us through this flying to London to go pick out pipes. I mean, that sounds like the worst job anyone's ever had. Yeah, I mean, uh, somebody had to do it, and <laughs> I was, uh, it was the most fascinating thing you can imagine. I mean, to be able to go into the secretive Dunhill factory, see everything that goes on, um, to, to go into this, this room in the back of the warehouse where thousands of Dunhill pipes or brand new pipes are stored and, and you just have your free range of picking what you want. Um, 
Mm. Of course, you had to you had to be smart about it because you you know you're spending someone else's money, and so you can't just say I'll take every one of them. But you make uh, selections based on what your customers were wanting to see and this and that, and uh, that's it. I mean, it was it was amazing. So do you go over there with some data that you have knowing that you need X amount of this, this, and this, and your budget says you can buy this amount and, and then you just start filling in those spots? Well, I'll say this, that music city during the time with music city, they didn't have very, uh, a very good updated type system in place to know exactly which shapes shape of pipes you had in stock. Uh, <laughs> you had various numbers and things like that and notes I would keep. Uh, but I always had a pretty good idea of what my inventory was and, and this and that. So I would go there looking to fill in gaps, uh, looking to, looking at things that I knew we had had, maybe, maybe things had come out uh, from the factory that we haven't seen in, you know, 10 years or something that the, the, the market hasn't seen. Uh, so you just had kind of free reign to pick what you wanted. And I did have a, there was always a budget in mind and I, I would get as close to that or sometimes I went over, but when you go back and sell them, Nobody says a thing. So as long as you can sell them, that's it. Yeah, so you, you had to go over there with some ideas, but you also had to keep your eyes open and and see what the factory had put out and yeah, and and uh, grab them if you thought you could sell them. Oh, of course. I mean, there were – you always had your – I call them the, the standard selection, which are some of your, you know, your standard shell billiards or, or bents or things like that. But you would always find rarities. Uh, you'd find just things that uh, just blew you away that you had to have. And you'd snag any, anything you could. Uh, <laughs> like when it came to star grades, if there were a selection of 15 or 20 different star grades, anywhere from you know one star to six star, uh, if you thought you had customers for them and you could sell them, I'd buy every one of them. And bring and would you carry them back home with you, or would they ship them to you? No, they would have to. They would go through a process at the factory. Once you picked them, the the uh, warehouse would then inventory them, and then they would have to invoice, and then they would pack them up in all the boxes and sleeves and ship them to you. So they usually came about uh, is about a month after I would leave. They would arrive in the states. How long would you be in London on a normal trip like that? Typically, I always stayed for three to four days. Um, one day, you know, was always the, but about two or two and a half days at the factory. And then the next day, the last day, uh, Calvin and I would spend time around London or doing whatever, going to the Imperial War Museum or, just hanging out, talking work, and, you know, also some time off. And did you go clothes shopping with him? 
No, lots of shoe shopping. <laughs> the man loves shoes. <laughs> I have spent hours in shoe stores in London and also looking for tweed jackets. He loves those. <laughs> Kelman, if you ever meet him, he is one of the uh he's one of the sharpest dressers you'll ever run into, so <laughs> <laughs> sometimes the colors are a little different than what we might wear here in the United States, but they work for him. Um, so let's talk about, so Dunhill and the music city is, uh, you know, obviously carried on the, uh, the Dunhill distribution for a while and then they get sold. And now you get, you, you went through two transformations there, I guess. Uh, you went from Music City to this new to the new company, correct? Yeah, that's correct. When Music City closed its doors, um, that's when I had the opportunity to work with Marco and carry on the brand here in the states. And uh, so that's when, in May, let's know it's in uh, September of 2017 is when Augusta USA opened. And before that, you went kind of. You, so you've really been through three transitions here: the the move to Augusta from Music City, the change of the name from Dunhill to the White Spot, which I'll get your opinion on that in a minute. Uh, but you also went through another very shocking and uh, transformative time when you went from the Marine Corps to the United States Navy. Yep, that is correct, uh, and that was in 2010. Um, I'd been out for quite a few years out of the military, and uh, I found a program with the Navy, and since I had been stationed on Navy ships my whole time, in the Marines just about, I was very familiar with them. And uh, I found a reserve program in the Supply Corps, and... Uh, I went to a reserve OCS and got commissioned and uh, I'm still doing it today. Got a few years left and I'm done. Well, before, and, uh, before I pick on you for, you know, leaving the Marine Corps and then going to the Navy, um, which for those that don't know, that's kind of traumatic for a lot of people. Uh, but uh, first, let me say thank you for your service and uh, thanks for continuing to serve. And now you're kind of moving up the ranks or, uh, and, you know, one day somewhere out there, you might have a whole bunch of uh, little Navy people underneath you. Well, that's it. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm up, I'm up for the selection board this summer for Lieutenant commander and uh, let's keep our fingers crossed on that. Um it was a it was a transition going from the Marines to the Navy, but at at the age I was at, uh, the Marines wouldn't take you anymore, wouldn't take me anymore because I was they have a strict age limit. So it was my only choice, and um, that was it. So I couldn't. It's not like I had the choice. That was it, and that's <laughs> what I wanted to do. So there I went. Well, if you get called back to active duty, just do me a favor, stay safe. And if you want, you can send all those white spot pipes to me and I'll keep an eye on them for you. That's no problem. I'll do it. 
All right. Now, let, I'd just like your opinion. I, I think we've talked on the show in the past about the switch from the name Dunhill to the White Spot. If you want to just give us your brief synopsis of why the change. Well, that happened quite a few years back before Augusta, USA. Um, you know, without getting into, into too much about it, um, it was something that had to happen um, in order for the factory to have a little bit more free range on products. Um, I'm not saying that I agree or agreed with it, but um, that was the decision that was made, so that's that's what I go by. And um, it has given them a lot more freedom to produce products under one of their old brand names, which that the white spot was one of their brand names back in the day. It was the white spot guarantee is what you got every time you bought a Dunhill product. Um, and so they picked up on that name again and everything is branded the white spot. The pipes still say Alfred Dunhill's the white spot. Uh, that's the new stamping on the pipe course, as you know, throughout all the years, the stamping on the bottom of the pipes has changed many times, yeah. many different versions of the Dunhill name. And now the Dunhill name is still on the pipe, just in one of its newer versions. So, um, everything's good. People have picked up on it. People know that when they see the white spot name, that it is a Dunhill product it is the exact same Dunhill product as they had purchased back then many years ago so nothing has changed in quality um, everything is still very high um, so we we go with it and that's what it is have you seen the uh, the secret oil curing process i will say that years ago in the factory when i was walking through the pipe factory one day um I glanced around and saw this looked like a uh, kind of like a um, pinwheel type device and it had just metal pegs all the way around it. And <laughs> I asked Calman, I said, what, what is, what is this? He says, well, that's the bowls fit upside down on those and that those are heated. And that's what is part of the oil curing process. And that's all he would say about it. So, <laughs> I have seen a portion of how it works, but I've not seen anything else. There's still some things, even when you walk through there, that they won't discuss or they cover up or things like that. And if you ever got captured, you're not going to, all you're going to give is name, rank, and serial number, right? No, no Dunhill oil curing process, no secrets, none of those. Uh,. Depends on how bad the torture is. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> that's right. Name, rank, and social security number. That's all you're getting. <laughs> um, it's you know going back it, with the Dunhill pipes coming out in the in 1909, 1910. Those first ones were stamped Dunhills, Dunhill apostrophe s. You know Dunhills pipes, and so now we're just kind of turning it right back around and calling him Alfred Dunhill's white spot. Um, 
are there so you get do you still get to go to london and and do the picking for augusta for the u.s well that has changed and it's changed for the better with marco being in rome he can catch an hour flight over to london spend one day there and be back in rome that same night um it gives us the opportunity to have a wider variety of pipes in stock versus when I used to do it for Music City, I would go once a year, and that was our stock for the whole year just about. Oh, boy. So now Marco goes many times during the year. Uh, there's always, you know, pipes coming in. Last week I had 30 pipes arrive just out of the blue. So... Um, it's it's given it, it works out a whole lot better, um, and I really enjoy the, the this new way of doing it. And and Marco, I would assume, is talking to you. Plus, he's here in the U.S. two or three times a year, so he knows the American market as well as anybody else does. Oh, correct. I mean, he deals with with Costello. He deals with the majority of the exact same customers I deal with. So he's known them all for a long time. Um, I talk to him two or three times a week. Um, and yeah, he knows exactly how the U S market, the, the one big difference in the U S market compared to where he distributes overseas is they do not sell very many accessories. Uh, any leather, they very rarely sell leather goods, cigar accessories, lighters. There's just not a big market for that over there. Uh, whereas here, that's a very big market. So that's one of the big differences between here and there. Yeah, and I and I failed to mention that you've got all those you've got all those accessories and lighters and and all that stuff that you that you sell here and get to deal with. And some of those lighters get pretty shiny and pretty looking. They do. Matter of fact, I just received twenty six new lighters this morning. Um, four new models so far. Uh, they just reintroduced the unique turbo for cigars. Uh, last year, I got a new model of that in today, a new unique model in today. Um, and three, let's see, two new roller gases right now. One is still on the way. So I keep every accessory in stock, every lighter that's available. Everything's here. And you'll deal with, uh, so in your daily routine, you're you know, shipping orders, invoicing, packing stuff, because it's kind of a, it's a, it's a bit of a one-man show for you right now, right? Oh, it is. It's just me. That's it. So I do, I do everything except for invoicing and, per and purchasing. That's all done in Italy uh, by Marco's sister, Sabrina. She does the invoicing via we email back and forth, and I've seen her stay up till two or three in the morning doing invoicing back to me so I can have it printed and shipped out. Wow. So, yeah, it works out perfect. Where over the uh, spring and summer do you think we'll be able to see you? Do you have any trunk shows uh, uh, and events coming up? Well, uh of course, we hope that they find a location for the Chicago Pipe Show. Yeah. Because as you know, what's happened with that. Um, and, of course, I'll be at the PCA uh, in July. 
at the big trade show. So we'll be there. And then various, maybe some trunk shows here and there. I'm always at uh, Ewan Reese in December in Chicago for my yearly trunk show. Um, and in between, just do some fill-in ones whenever people want them. Do you have a website that the public can go and look at, and then uh, you know you're not going to sell directly to them, but would you then they'd be able to tell their retailer what they want? Exactly, they can go to uh, AugustaUSA.us. Our our entire catalog is on there. Um, they can view all the products, accessories, and everything. Pipes are not on there because there's no way you could you you can't put that many pipes uh you would constantly be changing it but all the accessories and things like that they can see our catalog flip through it uh, and that's augustausa.us and if you're a retailer out there and you're looking for any white spot accessories or pipes that's the same website for you chris we will wrap this up with the fast five final questions no right answer no wrong answer just whatever comes to your mind are you ready i'm ready what is your favorite pipe? Dunhill. Well, there you go. That was kind of silly. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite tobacco? Favorite tobacco. I'm looking at some cans here on my desk of the old Benjamin Hartwell Evening Stroll. Ooh, that's going to be hard to replace. Uh, yep, I've got two unopened cans staring at me right now. Yeah, uh, well, smoke them slowly. I know. Um, what is your favorite drink? Ooh, how many can I list? Um, <laughs> on the weekends when I'm at the farm, it's Miller Lite. Uh, when I'm not there, I like lots of different craft beers. IPAs are some of my favorites. And then a, I've got a huge, probably 100, 120 bottle bourbon collection. And so usually on Sunday nights is my bourbon night. All right. So if you get deployed and I'll just watch the bourbon collection, forget the pipes. Sorry. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, when it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie or music? Movie. And finally, do you have a favorite pipe smoking related memory that we haven't talked about? It would probably be. Yes, I do. It would be one year when I was in London with Kalman. We, in where he lived in, he lived on Princess Gate. You could go to the top roof of, of his condo. And we sat on, it was a nice sunny day in London, which is odd. Yeah. <laughs> and we sat up on the roof and enjoyed a pipe and some bourbon just staring out the city and that was it uh and if you want to hear more of calman go back to the episodes where i recorded stuff live at the ipcpr over summer of 2019 and you'll hear me and calman talking about the uh, <laughs> including the eiffel tower pipe um, <laughs> uh, did you get to sell the eiffel tower pipe I didn't. I almost did. At one point, I had a buyer for it, but uh, some things happened and it didn't work out. But I think it's still at the factory waiting to be sold. 
Oh, so if anybody wants to buy that for me, I'm just kidding. Anyway, Chris, thank you very much for coming on. Again, it's AugustaUSA.us, and uh, we'll see you on the road somewhere. I'll see you then, Brian. Thanks for the time. We'll be back in just a minute. Being at the forefront of craft tobacco production for over 20 years, we've been involved in some rather interesting projects at Cornell and Deal. From the Cellar Series to the Small Batch Project, we're extremely proud of how far we've come. So moving forward, we wanted to take it back to basics, and that's what the Burley Flake Series is all about. Burley is an underrated varietal, but there is a ton of nuance there. Using various condimental tobaccos to accentuate different aspects of the air-cured leaf, each blend in this series is intended to showcase different individual subtleties inherent to Burley. It's a simple concept, one that I think really speaks to the essence of what we do at CND, as a crew of folks who just love tobacco. It's also really good. Cornell and Deal's Burley Flakes series, wherever fine tobaccos are sold. This is Internet Radio. And we are back, and I hope you got a, uh, hope you enjoyed meeting Chris and getting to see a little bit, a little inside the Dunhill factory there. Stuff I didn't even know. All right, for music this week, uh, former guest and friend and musician and uh, pipe smoker Dom Flemons has a brand new album out. It's called uh, Prospect Hill, the American Songster omnibus and this is uh it's a it's a the album's jam-packed full of uh i don't know 18 songs um anyway the one i picked out for us for us to listen to tonight is called uh my uh san san francisco baby and i picked it out because well i was born in san francisco and therefore i'm a san francisco baby although probably not in the same context as what he's thinking with this song but Anyway, the album is available now, and I believe it's on uh, Spotify and uh, and iTunes and all those places. Or you can go directly to Dom's website, which is theamericansongster.com, and order it directly from there. But here's Dom Flemons. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> Honey, I don't care San Francisco woman I begin to see you everywhere Now I was walking down the street I sort of caught your eye Fool on me as someone else in disguise Walking through the park I thought I saw your smile Fool on me, this feeling's mighty vile But sweet San Francisco baby We met on a summer spree San Francisco woman, oh yes I do decree Now I was walking down along by the crooked mile Try as I might, I couldn't crack a smile I threw up my hands and I left it to fate you Brought me sweet, you shine like the golden gate But sweet San Francisco baby, oh what else you got to say San Francisco woman don't leave me here by the bay Cause you're three times ten So I know you're ready to go Let's jump in the wagon Go down to Mexico 
We pump our heads and it'll make us laugh And then we'll pipe the whole town for a dollar and a half a sweet San Francisco baby, oh San Francisco babe I mean San Francisco babe Skeet, scope, skeet-a-doo Skeet-a-doo, beep bop beep So I know you're ready to go Let's jump in the wagon Go down to Mexico We bump our heads And it'll make us laugh And then we'll pipe the whole town For a dollar and a half a sweet San Francisco baby Oh, San Francisco babe I mean San Francisco babe Oh, yes San Francisco babe I mean San Francisco babe And again, that's Dom Flemons. The album is Prospect Hill, the American songster Omnibus. Check it out, download it, buy it, enjoy it. What's this? A letter for me. If you have a comment or question, you can email them directly to me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. You can send them to me via Facebook, or you can post them on the Pipes Magazine radio show page, Or you can follow me on Instagram and leave them for me there. And here's a couple of messages that go back to uh, go back to last week's show. And uh, Sea Smoke Pipes and Pottery commented, uh, "Was a great show. I met Rich about 11 years ago, and he was very generous with his time, showing me a few things about pipe making. Hoping to stop by his shop sometimes this year. About time you had him on the show. Keep up the good work. Thanks." Been talking back and forth to Rich for about two years about coming on the show. Uh, and then uh, B. Saro commented, uh, it was a great interview, and as always, your jokes had me laughing like a madman at 5 a.m. on the express bus to work. <laughs> if you're on a bus at 5 a.m., you've got to be a madman. Uh, anyway, uh, won't go into all the mailbag stuff because, you know, I'm recording this just four days after the show came out. However, I did get an email from uh, Dave, and Dave's a relatively new listener, and he says, So, a burning question. Once I open a tin, how do I keep it from drying out, and how can I add moisture? All right, here's with a, with a tin of tobacco, with an open tin, here's a couple of things that you can do to keep it from drying out. Uh, if you don't have... if 
if you open it and you're not going to smoke it, you know, within a week or so, especially those those flat the flat square tins and the flat round cans, you know, the 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 twist to open ones and then the pop open ones, they're hard to reseal and yeah, the tobacco is just going to dry out. Uh, so if you're not going to smoke it within a week or two, um, the easiest thing is to get one of those real heavy double lock, uh, double lock Ziploc bags that people use for their freezers, or you can wrap the tin up in some saran wrap in between use saran wrap grabs and, and does a good job, but that's only going to hold it for maybe, you know, maybe a month or so depending on the humidity in your area and the temperature in the room and all that stuff, you can, uh, the best thing is really to get a small Mason jar and just dump everything in there and just tighten that by hand. And that'll, that'll keep it nice and moist. Uh, if your if your tobacco gets dried out, well, <laughs> there's a couple of things you can do. Uh, one, you can just do like a cap full of filtered water and put it back in the tin and shake it up and let it sit for a day or two and see how that feels and then keep adding capfuls back in to the tin. That's not the greatest way, but it does bring moisture back into it. Uh, you can take a paper towel or two or three Put the tobacco, soak the paper towels in water, you know, set the tobacco down on top of one towel, put another towel on top of it that's soaked, and uh, let that sit in maybe a plastic bag for a couple of days and let that water, kind of let that moisture kind of soak into the tobacco. The, uh, the best thing really is just don't let it get dried out, all right? You know, mistakes happen and you can recover some of it, but once tobacco gets too dry, it's really hard to bring it back. Um, now, if you live in the southeast like I do or in a humid climate uh, during the summertime, uh, we've got a screened-in porch here, so I will just put the tobacco out on the porch with the lid open and let the natural 70% humidity that we get during the summer yeah, fill it back up full of moisture. So there's always that way. I have heard of people taking tobacco into the bathroom with them while they're showering and, you know, when the bathroom gets all hot and steamy and then you get the hot steam on there. I've heard of people that have uh, taken a tea kettle, boiled water, and when the steam's coming out of that, they've steamed the tobacco. I've heard that. Um, I've heard of all kinds of methods, including putting an apple or a, uh, cutting an apple and putting it in there or cutting a potato and putting it in there <laughs> all different ways, uh, figure out which works for you. The apple may put a little apple flavor into it. That's it. So, all right. That's all I got for you. Um, Chicago pipe show. I have not had an official update. And again, I'm recording this on uh, Friday, February 29th. So no official update, but I can tell you that they are working and they are they are they are going to have the show. It will be that first weekend in May, May 2nd, 3rd, right around there. They are committed to having a Friday pre-show and an all-day Saturday and Sunday show. So go ahead, plan your trip and get yourself there. All right? So just plan your trip. We just don't know and as soon as I hear anything, I'll post it all over my social media. And then uh, we'll put it out on the show as soon as we get locations and all that stuff. But they're going to have a show. Um, 
travel-related tips. So I thought I'd start a little bit of a segment here, maybe about a minute or two uh, each week of travel things that I do that are not specific to pipes and tobaccos and traveling with them. All right, so here is travel travel tip number one. Anytime you fly anywhere, you really should have two photo IDs. Even if you're if you're in the United States and you're only traveling within the United States, I like to travel with my passport and my driver's license. And then when I get to where I'm going, I leave my passport. If I'm in the U.S., I leave my passport in the hotel room, in the safe, or hide it in my dirty underwear. And that way I have two photo IDs. And the reason I do that is for two reasons. One, if I lose my wallet or lose my driver's license... Well, I don't have to wait for a state ID to be issued to come back home. I have the other ID as a way to get back home. Okay? Uh, Same thing when I'm overseas. I travel with two IDs. The driver's license goes into the hotel safe or in some dirty underwear. And then the passport is carried with me as a form of ID. And I do it for the same reasons. Uh, the other reason that you need to that you might want to consider having two photo IDs is if there's ever a time of national security again, like there was in September 2001, they wanted two photo IDs to get on an airplane. So there you go. That's the reason why anytime I travel, I carry two photo IDs. And remember, if you have travel-related questions, email brian.levine at mei-travel.com. If you're going anywhere, let me know, or you can email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. And if if you use my services to book you, it doesn't cost you any more than it would if you book directly with uh, with the cruise line or with wherever, okay? Uh, And if you just take my advice that's free, well, that's free too. All right, rant time. Coming up next. There's nothing quite like hunting at dawn or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. friend that only likes bent billiards and you prefer straight uh, bulldogs well do you have a friend that uh, only smokes virginia periques or know anybody like that including me and uh, can't stand the smell of latakia or uh, refuses to try an aromatic uh, do you have a friend that uh, only likes big pipes and you only like small pipes well you know what that's the beauty of this hobby and that's the beauty of most of the people on this in this planet we accept other people's ideas and preferences and our friends that have those other ideas and preferences well they don't force them upon us and like i've said in the past if you smoke a pipe and you smoke pipe tobacco in it well you're a friend of mine and it doesn't matter what the cost of the pipe is 
or what the type of tobacco is, well, I accept that that's what you like, that's what you enjoy, so therefore you're a friend of mine, and if you tell me that I have to smoke what you like, and have to smoke the type of, of pipes that you like, well, then I'm not going to be your friend anymore, I'm sorry, alright, that's all there is to it. Uh, we here in the United States, most of us openly accept your own personal preferences, your own ideas. And most of us, 99% of us pipe smokers around the world, we all know that there are plenty of choices, plenty of other options, and everybody has their favorite. And we don't, you know, we'll, we'll offer you. I'll always offer somebody my favorite, but explain to them it's not the best tobacco in the world. But this is what I like the most. So here, try this. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry. But that's what we do. We accept, we accept everybody else's uh, uh, ideas and preferences. And we don't uh, get upset when they're different than ours. So there you go. All right. Done with that rant. Maybe. Um, anyway, uh, once again, follow me on Facebook, follow me on Instagram. I've got pictures posted from the trip and stuff like that. And, uh, if you have any comments or questions for me, email me, Brian at pipesmagazine.com, or you can send them through all the normal message ways. Um, also remember JDRF auction stuff, please. If you have anything you'd like to donate, please reach out to me as soon as you can. Uh, thank you to Chris Feltz for joining me. Thank you all for tuning in and until next time. the clouds when we're together just sing a song and think about sunny weather happy Guys, pretty bizarre, guess.